Have you ever stopped to consider that the story of our world begins with a catastrophic and singular and epic failure of which there is no parallel in all of human history? Seriously, it's almost kind of funny. I want you to pretend like you haven't been a Christian all these years. And as if you're reading the Bible for the first time. Chapter 1. A ridiculously good and a ridiculously kind and a ridiculously powerful God speaks the world into existence from a, an amazing imagination. Chapter 2. After a strong first week, the Lord introduces Himself to man and woman and He gives them paradise for a home Literally the coolest job ever. And just one rule. Chapter 3. Man and woman break literally the only rule in the history of the world. Shatter the created universe. Lose paradise. Cast blame. Curse themselves and run in terror. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of the story of our world. So what's interesting about this situation is that it hasn't changed. Think about these characters. Man or humanity and God on the stage of the universe. That hasn't changed. And just like People broke creation when they embraced the darkness. They haven't stopped breaking creation by embracing the darkness. People are yet enemies of God. And that has consequences, real-life consequences in real-life situations. It's why the news exists. (laughs) Genocide and climate change and political unrest and coups in South America and civil war in sub-Saharan Africa. These are just examples of what happens when a people who embrace the darkness have free reign over the world. Now what's remarkable about this situation is People have never once stopped craving the goodness of God and all the blessings that His nearness entails. There are documentaries and news articles and newspaper pieces and books and movies whose sole purpose is to try and fix the problem and whose sole vision is to return to those things that we lost when the nearness of God was no longer an option, right? Few have the courage to admit that we are the problem. People have broken the world. And while we may spend our energies trying 
to fix minor problems on the way to the great disaster that is coming for us, we know, every single one of us knows, that we have not the power to fix the world. The situation of humanity hasn't changed. I want to sort of, in an effort to simplify, I want to sort of use the terms the wrath problem to explain the situation of humanity. Men and women from day one have longed for the blessings of God. In the midst of all of our suffering, the true devastating irony is that God is there. Right? God has the power to fix it in a moment. God has the power to heal. He has the power to restore. He has the power to give life to that which is dead, right? And He's always been there. So you would think, well, why don't people just ask God to fix it? And the reason is that when they embraced the darkness, people made God their greatest enemy. We can't go and ask God for healing and hope and restoration because His nearness means wrath for us, right? His nearness means our destruction. So every generation from Adam to today, every generation has been in the same situation, longing for the blessings that surround the presence of God. Longing for the power of God. Longing for the kindness and the love of God. And yet, being terrified of the wrath of God. That's the wrath problem. If you can imagine that situation, if you can imagine the situation wherein you crave all the goodness that happens when God is near, but you're terrified of all the wrath that happens when God is near. If you can imagine that situation, if you could situate yourself in that situation, then you're ready to understand this passage. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. Turn to 2 Samuel 6. We long for the blessings of our greatest enemy, And when we realize in a moment of cold sobriety that our situation is untenable, when we realize in an honest moment that we don't have the stuff to survive without God whose wrath we deserve, we're in a place to understand this text. So I want to read it all, and then I want to go back and take it in pieces. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Great. Read with me. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. 
And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay. So the first thing you need to know about this episode in David's story is that you can't really understand it without a fresh memory of the last episode in David's story. So I want to briefly circle back And read a few verses from chapter 5. So turn a page, or if it's on the same page, start reading with me in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Bel-perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. So the first thing I want you to notice is that the Philistines are behaving precisely as you would have expected them to behave. Just like all the other men and women on the planet, they've embraced the darkness. They've chosen the wrong side. And the chief characteristic of the darkness is a resistance to all that is good. So when God moves to set a good king over his people and takes one step closer to redeeming a people for himself, the Philistines rage. They rally their armies 
and they rise up against the newly crowned King David. And as soon as he learns of this approaching enemy, David turns to God and asks for help. And take note of what happens here. The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give, give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. As soon as God intervenes, the Philistines are crushed in His presence. And what's particularly important for the purpose of this passage is the terms that are used to explain how God crushes His enemies. The text says that God's wrath is poured upon His enemies like a breaking flood. And the breaking flood of God's wrath is so clear, is so obvious to all who see it, that the armies of Israel renamed the place Baal Perazim, which means something like Lord of the Breakings Forth. Just think of a floodwaters crushing, right? God breaks through the Philistines because that's what happens when God's nearness confronts the darkness. So keep that in your pocket and let's revisit 2 Samuel 6. As soon as this episode begins, we see that David's decided that the Ark of God which is the tangible embodiment of God's presence or God's nearness. He decides he wants it near him in Jerusalem. The text makes it clear that this is what the ark represents and that this is why David wants the ark in Jerusalem. Listen to this. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. A few things to note here. One, the ark is basically an engraved gold box. And on the top of that box were two statues of cherubim, which are a type of angel. Second, the ark was a unique and extraordinarily special symbol for the people because it held objects like the budding staff of Aaron, like the broken tablets of the covenant, like the jar full of manna, that acted as a reminder that God made a covenant to rescue His people. The ark is a picture of God's presence according to God's covenant. But perhaps most importantly, notice how the ark is described. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Three ways to say the same thing. God, David went to get the ark. Which ark? The Ark of God. Could you be more clear? The Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord. Can you give me a bit more? The Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And the reason I think that the author goes out of his way to give so many details about the Ark is to remind the reader that the Ark represents God's presence. It is a visual symbol of God's nearness to the people of Israel. And the careful reader is going to ask questions here. Because God's nearness doesn't always mean good things. It doesn't always work out well. You may remember that the Philistines stole the ark in battle and paraded it from city to city. What happened? What happened? Tumors, death, destruction. In each city, the nearness of God meant wrath. At every stop, the ark brought 
death and destruction because the nearness of God always confronts the darkness. So when David and his men decide that the ark should be moved to Jerusalem, the careful reader begins to pay close attention. Because the nearness of God is good only for the righteous. Only for those who keep the covenant of God. Yet David and his men long for the nearness of God, for the blessings that come to the righteous because of the nearness of God. So they go and get it. Keep reading from verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Okay, stop. What's wrong with this pick? Bible quiz. I used to play that game. You know? Bible quiz. What's wrong with this picture? Anybody know? You can't carry... That's how the Philistines carry their idols. You don't carry the Ark of God on a new cart when the Philistines were just fed up with dying, right? What did they do? The only thing they knew how to do, right? They took the Ark and they put it on a new cart and they said, go cows, right? Exactly. The law demands that the Ark of God be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. Take note. David has no shortage of Levites. And the poles are there. The poles are there, and the Levites are there. But David had apparently either not bothered to consult the law, or he did consult the law and didn't care. David's actions may have been well-intentioned, but he immediately, as soon as there's an opportunity... David immediately breaks the covenant. David's worship of God here looks a lot more like the Philistines' worship of idols than the chosen people's worship of the one true God. So David and his people are violating the covenant while pretending to celebrate the nearness of God. And we shouldn't expect that this turns out well. Keep reading. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David and his men have placed themselves in a dangerous situation here. God is near. His presence is near. But they have stepped outside of the protected boundaries of the covenant. They have chosen the wrong side. And when God is near, He does not tolerate darkness. It seems maybe like a slight error reaching out to... Even a well-intentioned error, right? Reaching out to... Don't want the ark to fall. But you must see the situation for what it is. Uzzah is a Levitical priest. He should have been an expert in the law. He should have spent his whole life reading the law. He should have known that they were in the act of violating the covenant, of removing themselves from the protective umbrella of the covenant. 
His actions are an overflow of his heart, which didn't acknowledge the righteousness of God and didn't honor him for who he is. And when he touches the ark, the very symbol of the nearness of God, a man that he is, having embraced the darkness as he has, the heart full of sin, and now outside of the protected boundaries of the covenant, God's nearness meant wrath for him. And don't miss the words they use to explain that wrath. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was angry because the Lord... What did he do? What did he do? David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And they called that place Perez Uzzah. Same word. Same word used when David rejoiced because the Lord had broken out against the Philistines. You see, God's wrath was welcomed when it breaks out against David's enemies, but not when it addresses the darkness in his own heart. That hurts, right? That's you. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point of these words. God's nearness is wrath for those outside of the protective boundaries of the covenant. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God's nearness is wrath for those outside of the protection of the covenant. And that wrath meant death for the Philistines, and that wrath meant death for the Levitical priest. Do not invite the nearness of God unless you expect wrath against the darkness. Keep reading. Pick it up in verse 8. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. And it was told David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. This, I think, is the very heart of the passage. This thought process, David's thought process concerning the nearness of God is the centerpiece of this passage. I think it sits in the heart of this passage because David here represents humanity as it faces in cold sobriety the wrath problem. David was afraid of the Lord that day, rightfully so. The nearness of God means wrath for the sinner. And his question, guys, his question is spot on. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's asking that question from an honest and sober heart. If the Levitical priest fell dead in the nearness of God, 
How can I stand in His presence? How do I stand a chance? How will the city of Jerusalem not be doomed when God is near? The people of Israel are broken. Their hearts are broken. And while they may have moments of regret and short seasons of faithfulness, they spend their days and nights in the bulk of their time rejecting the God who rescued them from slavery. So David's question is spot on. The nearness of God means wrath for the sinner. And David is a sinner. And the, and the city of Jerusalem is full of sinners. So how can the ark of God come to Jerusalem? At first, David loses heart altogether. And he gives up on the idea. He sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom was a Levite. He knew the covenant. And he would know how to care for the things of God. So the ark would remain out of sight, out of mind. By sending the ark away, David gave up any hope of the nearness of God because he was terrified of the wrath of God. But watch what happens. The house of Obed-Edom is blessed. For months, blessed by God. The blessings of God on the house of Obed-Edom are evident to everyone. The whispered in the marketplace. The buzz of rumors resonates throughout the land and the people watch and long for the blessings that God bestows on the house of Obed-Edom. And the king of Israel watches and he longs for the blessings of God. And men approach the throne in Jerusalem and remind King David that the nearness of God means blessings and peace for the righteous. And David is jealous for that nearness. Imagine. Imagine. Tortured by the fear of God's wrath. And tortured by the missed opportunity of God's blessings. Oh, to enjoy the blessings of God without fear of God's wrath. How can the ark of God come to Jerusalem? If only there were a way. If only there were a way to enjoy the nearness of God without fear of the wrath of God. Perhaps this would have been the end of a very sad story. But you see, David is a man after God's heart. And God has made a way for His people. Keep reading. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. What changed? Did you see it? What changed? What's the answer to David's desperate question? How will the ark come to me? That question was just answered in this paragraph. Two changes. 
They made two changes that transformed the circumstances of Israel's nearness to God. The nearness of God meant death and weeping on the one hand, and joy and dancing on the other. So what changed? Two things. First, they changed sides. They stopped sinning. They stopped treating God like an idol of the nations. And they began to honor Him as the one true God. It's right there, hidden in plain sight. When those who bore the ark of the Lord, those who bore, David desperately craved the blessings of God that happen when he's near to his people. So what, do we do? what does he do? He reads the covenant, right? He consulted the law. He realized his error and he repented of his foolish sin. He knows now God won't be worshipped like he's a pagan idol. God will be worshipped on his own terms. He sees it now. David sees it now. He recognizes his sin and he repents. There's no more new thing. They're using the poles and the Levites. The new card is nowhere in sight. And they are safe within the protection of the covenant. But repentance isn't enough. Their hearts are stained by darkness. They still carry the weight of their guilt before a good God whose nearness means death to the guilty. There's only one way to remove the weight of guilt. There's only one way to remove the debt they've incurred over a lifetime of rebellion. So they sacrifice. Innocent blood is spent on their behalf. When the Levites had carried the ark six steps, what do they do? I don't pay much attention to numbers, but sometimes the numbers are important. On the seventh step, right? What does David do? What do the priests do? They sacrifice a bull. And they lay their sins on an innocent. His blood covers their guilt according to the terms of the covenant. And this work, the sacrifice of an innocent who bears the sins of a guilty people, from the moment it is prescribed in the law, that work is a foreshadow of the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. Unless you believe that this is merely an ancient story explaining an ancient situation of an ancient people who lived according to an ancient expired covenant, lest you believe that this story has nothing to do with you, trace the shadows. David dances before the ark wearing a linen ephod. This is the king, not Levitical priest. Wearing the holy garments of a priest. That you should be asking yourself how and why. Because just a moment ago, a man died because he broke the terms of the covenant. But here is the king of Israel wearing clothing restricted to the priests of Israel dancing before the ark, right? You should be asking whether there's any historical precedent that would explain how David in his audacity could stand before the ark of God wearing the garments of a priest Though he is the king. It should be flipping backwards. 
in the scriptures, searching the law for evidence of a king who was also the priest of the Most High God. And if you did so, you'd find Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, to whom great father Abraham offers a tenth of everything. And if you found that, you'd trace that shadow to Psalm 110, David's ancient song about a priest king who would finally and forever deliver his people. And if you did that, you'd trace that shadow to Jesus. And you'd realize that this song is an ancient prophecy about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you'd realize that that was the most quoted passage in the entire New Testament. And in that moment, you'd realize that this episode is not about David, and it's not about an ark, and it's not about ancient Jerusalem. In that moment, you'd realize that this is a story about you. Oh, to enjoy the blessings of God without the fear of God's wrath. If only there were a way. If only there were a way to enjoy the nearness of God without fear of God's wrath. You and me were born into sin. From day one, we have been enslaved by the darkness. We have fought alongside the dark prince against whom, against the God from whom all good things flow. Our hearts were wicked. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We had made ourselves enemies of God. His nearness meant our destruction. And yet we long for His nearness. We long for the healing that only He can offer. We long for the blessings of His presence. We long for peace, for fellowship, for hope. We long for His good gifts. God is our only hope. He can fix the world. He can fix your broken heart. He can restore your broken body. He can give life to the dead. God is our only hope. You have a wrath problem. You have made an enemy of your only hope. And all your striving to fill the void, all your striving for peace and wholeness and life is futile. Because you've made an enemy of the only God who can give it. So ask yourself together with David, how can the ark of God come to me? What can you do to enjoy the blessing of God without fearing the nearness of God? Step one, flee from the darkness. Give up. Lay down your arms. Repent. The ways of the darkness will never give you peace. You'll never have life by chasing your sin. Stop it. Stop chasing after the things that steal your joy. Stop sinning. Stop lying. Stop looking at porn. Stop screaming at your wife. Stop stealing from your boss. Stop getting drunk. Stop trying to convince everyone around you that you're clever, smart, worthy of praise. 
Stop sinning. You want to enjoy true peace, true restoration, true blessing, true fellowship, true hope? Repent. Stop sinning. Step two. Claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God, bore your sin on the cross. He bore the wrath of God so you don't have to. Amen? Jesus is the great high priest who carried his own blood before the throne of God in order that we might wear his righteousness. Always. Trust Jesus who is strong enough to carry the weight of your guilt. Trust Jesus whose blood has been spilt to reconcile you to the God whose blessing is your only hope. I alluded to Titus 3 just a moment ago. Let me read you the entire passage. We, were, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through whom? Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the answer. That's the answer of David's desperate question. That's the resolution to our own cries of desperation. Oh, to enjoy the blessings of God without fear of God's wrath. If only there was a way. There is a way. Christ's blood is the way. Christ's blood was offered on your behalf. Christ bore your sins on the cross. Trust Him and you'll be saved from the wrath of God and you'll be justified and you'll become an heir. And this is step three. Just like David repented from his sins and sacrificed and then danced his way into the city of Jerusalem. You're there. If you're in Christ, you're there. If you're in Christ, you are dancing your way into Zion. From now on, if you're, in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you need to come talk to somebody today. But if you are in Christ, if you have trusted the blood of Christ, you are in David's garments. A nation of priests dancing their way into Mount Zion. Enjoy the blessings of God now and look forward to the blessings of God in Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. Let's celebrate at the table. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.